0: Welcome to Kick the Dogma, the podcast where I interview authors of books on investing, economics, behavioral finance, and business more generally. Today's episode is an interview with Algie Hall, author of Four Ways to Beat the Market, a practical guide to stock screening strategies to help you pick winning shares. Algie is a journalist, and 10 years ago, he started tracking the performance of his own stock picks generated by his four screens, which are similar to the factors used by quants, but it's not a black box. Algie uses them as an idea generator from which he does deeper financial and qualitative analysis, which is what I think any financial advisors who are still trying to pick stocks should be doing, basically to improve their chances of success. For that matter, active fund managers that aren't finding success should be doing the same thing. Investors are, after all, odds makers, and this is a practical guide to improving your odds. Enjoy my talk with Algie Hall. Today I'm talking to Algie Hall, author of Four Ways to Beat the Market, A Practical Guide to Stock Screening Strategies, to help you pick winning shares. Good morning, sir.
1: Good morning, great to be here, John.
0: T- tell us a little bit about your, I'll call it your, your day job, your your profession that actually led to this 10 year project, which then led to the book.
1: Yeah, no, sure. Um, so um, I'm, I'm a financial journalist and I, I suppose I'm a bit of a kind of um, outsider type financial journalist because um, it wasn't ever planned as a career. Um, I had um, I'd studied economics and politics at university and then decided, as one does after doing that, that I wanted to become a children's book illustrator. And um, <laughs> I ended up with a part time job um, uh, with, uh, with, with a great man called Lawrence Lever. And I, he, he got me researching for his investment fund, which I was fascinated by, and also writing for a newsletter that he had. And um, then whilst working with him, I helped helped him set up a company called CityWire and just carried on writing as I'd been writing for him, researching stocks um, for CityWire. So um, and then I kind of, you know, I, I changed jobs. I went to work for somewhere called the Investors Chronicle. And I always had this great affinity with um, looking at numbers to try and find a way into ideas, try and identify ideas. And at the Investors Chronicle, I started um, a stock screening column, which I um, wrote for about ten years. And um, really, it, um, the performance of the screens which I covered totally exceeded any expectation I had. I, I was, you know, always a big fan of um, books like One Up on Wall, Sh- Wall Street by Jim O'Shaughnessy, but I can I never I ne- never expected for the screens to do as well as they did. And it really just got me, you know, thinking I really just want to understand, you know, what they're harnessing, you know, why this approach can be so powerful and really, you know, what value it has for, um, you know, the people I'm writing for, but investors in general, in terms of helping them make better decisions and pick better stocks.
0: So let's get uh, two definitions out of the way. Well, it's really one definition, factors and anomalies. The, The quantitative world calls these things factors the EMH world, the academics will call them anomalies, which I always found a funny term because, oh, let's just <laughs> dismiss these. You know, they don't fit. It our, shouldn't happen. It shouldn't <laughs> happen. Uh, let's, they don't fit our narrative about efficient markets. I, I like to call them disconfirmations. But uh, how do you explain uh, in your column and what factors or anomalies are?
1: Well, yeah, I, I mean, I, I suppose I maybe have. um a bit more of a homely view on um you know on the on these kind of subjects um so i mean i i, th- I think i suppose um you know really you know w- what you're think thinking about when you're thinking about these um phenomenon which have um you know which appeared to exist in markets in ways to outperform is you're looking at market inefficiencies um and the really interesting question for me is you know you know why do they occur what's the advantage that um you know you that you can get from um you know from these inefficiencies and um I, I suppose part of part of the thing I'm really interested in is that there always needs to be or seems to be kind of some kind of contradiction um uh, there in terms of um you know what what's going on so um you know something it's something like uh you know value- value investing for example, you have you know the um the contradiction that you're full of fear at the time of maximum opportunity. So, um, which creates these, you know, it, you know, sometimes you can be right to be fearful, but, um, oh, you know, on average, you're, you know, there are opportunities there, but, um, the, the way, the way I've kind of always looked and understood factor research is, um, not in a very prescriptive way. So I think quite often when it's provided, um, the the, the research is used by um quants um and fat or you know factor and uh funds you're you're kind of actually uh looking at whatever's been tested and you're mimicking it you're just you know you're using that as your guide was i suppose um the way i'd explain my understanding and interest in factor investing is that it's kind of like a sign it's an arrow pointing down a path or road but the road's really windy so if you just follow the arrow you're not going to stay on the road. You're going to kind of go cross-country or whatever. And, you know, the road may be bending around to somewhere you'd never expected. Right. So um, for me and for the work I've done, the value has always been in the fact that it's kind of, it's not a prescriptive um, thing, for, you know, the, the evidence from fact to investor investing, but it's, it's evidence that a certain approach to stocks and markets um, kind of improves your chances of outperforming.
0: Right. So, and that's the book turned out to be a little bit different than I thought when I just saw the title. This is you have your screens, and we're going to go into the four uh, screens. And but in each of them, you have variables that you screen upon uh, within value, within quality, within momentum, and dividends. And some of them are cutoffs, if you will. Some of them are I think I'll ask specifics later about ranking them, if you will. But then you're doing securities analysis, which is another thing I'll get into. From the beginning, there were factors, uh, papers out there, academic papers that said value works, momentum works and stuff. You've added layers to that analysis. Did you backtest it 10 years ago, your version, or did you just start doing it? number one and number two what was your methodology for because i went through the appendices and it's great you actually list the stocks that the screens kicked out and um the numbers of stocks changes that's that's in the portfolio how uh, how many the footsies what 100 stocks
1: yeah well um the all share was for quite a few of them and one was 350 so um but how many how many did
0: you end up with and just general things like that i'd be fascinated to learn about
1: where i started was um probably trying to think about the ty- the characteristics of a stock which would be held by an individual who was um who who, who is trying to implement one of these strategies. So wasn't I wasn't looking to, you know, the um whilst all the factor research, the empirical stuff, is really fascinating, I wasn't looking to that as a guide. I was thinking far more, you know, far well homely was the word I used. This kind of far more homely way of, you know, if I was holding, you know, a stock which kind of exemplified a value situation or a quality situation. What kind of things would I really want to, you know, want to see? What would I be expecting to see? Um, And then uh, it was a case really with building these screens of, um, you know, understanding, you know, what factors were supporting each other, I suppose, and what were, and what factors, or, you know, so I'm talking factors, I mean, what um, kind of individual criteria, criterion, were really valuable in the process and then whittling it down. Because the, the danger with uh, screening is that you just, you know, you put too much stuff in and, you, and, you, and it end up, ends up being meaningless. You get no result. Right. But I mean, quite a few of the screens do have quite a few criteria because, it, because I was also writing with this idea that these are stocks which you want to re, um, research at the end. Part of the value is in keeping uh, the output to a relatively small number 100%. so you can actually concentrate and do the work.
0: Yeah, and um, yeah, I I agree. I, I was a securities analyst in public mutual funds and hedge funds for for almost twenty years. And in the U.S., when I started, there were eight thousand stocks, you know, publicly traded in the U.S. to choose from. How do you you, you I imagined I, this is how I came to my process. Mike, I walk in at Monday morning at seven a.m. What do I do? How do we even start? You know, like because I was a fundamental analyst, I was reading. The SEC filings, the annual reports and queues, and building Excel models. I mean, one company analysis just to get started would take a week. You know, how do you yeah. uh, screen it down? And that's what this makes this so powerful to me.
1: I mean, and I, I think probably um most people I speak to would say it's kind of a day before you even really know whether you, you know, it's whether working. there's anything even vaguely there. Right. So I mean so yeah, so it's kind of best to start with a you know a very promising pool of ideas. hundred percent. And and
0: um how many stocks would be in, and this was, it was this a January one to December 31 project. No, uh,
1: be- because it was for a column. It was, um, it, I, I was doing, I was doing these uh, screens throughout the year. Okay. Now, if you, so these, these are kind of, what I What I ended up doing was choosing four screens, which come kind of like really exemplify uh, four different, you know, very proven approaches right. uh, for the book. But um, there were kind of guru screens and things like that I was doing. Which actually taught me a lot, also. Um, so um, they, they, any, anyway, because we're we were running them in the magazine. They all have different start dates. And then um, I left the magazine in uh, late uh, 2021, I think it was. Oh no, I started writing the book in late 2021. I left the magazine in early 22. So um, uh, I, the book just covers a ten a ten year period for each, from when they started.
0: Okay, and I should have introduced. A, ve- a fact from the beginning is a hook to listeners that the the outperformance of each of the four strategies is absolutely stunning, and 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 it's worth mentioning that because it'll people see well, how how did he do it?
1: I mean, no, I mean the, the the outperform. I mean, I I I think it's. I mean, because it because it's not scientific at all. Because you've got. A screen a year, and the 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 idea is you rotate into. I mean, this isn't the idea for if you're actually using them, but the, the way the performance figures are done is you rotate into the new batch of stocks each time the screen is um, a new screen comes out. Okay. So that's where the performance record comes from. Whereas in actual fact, obviously, if you you do your research and take a position, then you don't want to just be saying after a year I'm out. It's um so it's it's kind of something of an artif a journalistic artifice to kind of you know. Have it that we just reshuffle completely Understood. after a year, but um uh yeah, so um it, it's um but the 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 performance I think probably you know it does seem to resemble what you would expect in terms of the studies into when certain styles outperform and don't, and the kind of drawdowns you would expect from them, but also the level of outperformance um I think partly is um a reflection of the fact that the u k market which these screens were conducted on isn't as bad as most people think because most people see the main index and um, it's dominated by some very large but you know fairly long in the tooth you know X growth companies which just you know um, you know kind of struggling to keep their place in their markets and so actually you have quite a you know a rich um, <clears throat> stock picking landscape beneath that. So I, I think, you know, partly um, the level of outperformance, um, you know, reflects the fact that there's actually, there are actually, you know, good stocks quoted in the UK, despite the fact that I think a lot of people <laughs> look, at, look at the UK and they see the performance dictated by these very large, heavily weighted companies. But I mean, saying that the performance is, you know, very considerable. So it's not just that. It's, um right. You know, it's, you know, you're, you're, I'm, I'm, you know, I feel fairly confident in, you know, in, in you know, saying these screens have really latched on to the meat behind these kind of, you know, these factors, and people have observed.
0: Yeah, and two, two points you brought up to to clarify. One is that this was done in the UK, but the underlying factors, the academic work does apply to other countries. But your your work was done in the UK, and a point that Joe Wiggins we talked about uh, in the preamble. Uh, mentioned to me was, because he's allocating, he's like, how do you pick an active fund manager? There's you know, yes. 90% of them in the US don't outperform, don't add value. He did mention that active managers in the UK tend to uh, do better on average than what you see in the US. And it was kind of because of the the structural dynamics of your uh, market, the, the way you yeah. exactly described it, yeah. the, the richness of the opportunities. So, And then lastly, because it's interesting, you said in your introduction, you, you, you were a securities analyst. And this is Again, not a, a black box, because uh, you can buy a value factor ETF in the US or uh, Momentum. Uh, there are firms like DFA that were built upon trying to build factors. But at the end of the day, you'll have a list and you'll go through the SEC filing, or sorry, our SEC, your uh, annual reporting filings, and um, also do the, the, the qualitative analysis to say, for instance, in, a, in, a, in the quality screen, high return on capital. What? Why will it continue to work? You know, uh, you do do a, fit of, a fair bit of that. I understand.
1: Yeah, um, yeah. No, no. I mean, I. I um, when when um, I was writing the book, really, I mean, the key to it is um, based on getting a real understanding of why um, certain approaches to investing work. Work. So it's not um, really about the numbers um, so much at all, as kind of about the ideas which underlie. These strategies and the ideas about how you can identify stocks which really um, fit with the strategies. And um, one of the key reasons for that is because um, the investor audience that I've you know always focused on is um, an audience which wants to buy individual stocks. And I think one of the most important things with owning stocks is to, you know, really understand them so that when you do get whacked and also the same is true of a strategy, when your strategy gets whacked and is underperforming and you feel miserable and you feel like I just want to give up, you've actually got faith that, no, okay, this is, you know, this is what happens. This should, this is, you know, this is why I'm, you know, this is almost a cost um, of my strategy outperforming, the fact that I have to suffer periods of underperformance and sometimes you know, the stocks I pick won't work. But if I carry on applying what I understand and what I have faith in, I, you know, I, I should come out, you know, better than I would otherwise. And it's, you know, it's the emotional torment of investing, really, that people have to deal with. And I think, um, you know, for some people, you can just say, OK, I'm just going to, um, you know, use a quant strategy. And that's going to, you know, I'm just going to put my faith just in that process and keep on applying, applying it. And that's where I'm going to overcome this. But I think actually, for most people, that's harder than actually really just knowing, you know, the individual stocks that you're buying Good and point. holding and why you're and why you've got them. Yeah. So, um, so yeah, the, I mean, the book is, um, I think it, it kind of possibly, I mean, this is a terrible thing for a book to um, do to itself, but I think the book is. You know, possibly sounds more niche than it actually is because, because <laughs> <laughs> in order to actually you know understand these strategies and um you know how to apply them to individual stocks, you have to have a very broad understanding of you know what investments actually about.
0: Right, but I, I agree with you. I, I'm um I think about the the strengths of passive versus active, and how and I understand all the academic theory and I'm I'm, I'm working on a, a book myself that kind of just because i went to business school i studied finance and uh, i went back and looked at all the academic work of coming you know from uh modern portfolio theory to beta and capital asset pricing model all the way to emh and and they try to explain why active investors uh don't succeed and one of my conclusions is it's because they listen to you it's because they follow. <laughs> Because they're still trying to use beta, which was declared dead in 1992, because they're defining risk as short-term volatility. When and an at-risk uh, asset class like equities, it should be irrelevant. Like you should. And but we're we're emotional animals, and we'll get into the behavioral side of, of these things. Because I'm really interested to learn. Like, and you have a sections in every chapter, which is great. Uh, why does it work? Okay, we see it, but why? And uh, but anyway, to go to your point. So today, with the market going up and down. And it, causing your stomach to hurt as an investor, you don't know what you own. But if you're if you own McKesson or Amerisource Bergen, and these are not recommendations, I'm just throwing out big cap, high quality names that pay a dividend. You're like, well, okay, their business is still the same business, and on the thirtieth of the of the quarter, I'm going to get a dividend, no matter what, and and I'll go back to my day job and just let that compound. Yeah. Uh,
1: and, and, and also, you have to know what you feel comfortable with. I mean, like, yeah, it's, exactly. It's like, you know, it's, everyone's different. And yeah. it's like, you know, it's, there's not a one-size-fits-all fits all answer. No.
0: So, yeah. So I'll let, I'll, right before we get into the specifics of the screen, I'll throw out kind of three questions at once and let you, you have a chapter, why stock screening works. So why does it work? And when you get into this very specific screens, you have uh, core versus non-core, if you could explain that. And then third, I think you addressed this uh that you they're based they're they're equally weighted that the attempts to monkey with them and place higher it tends to backfire on you so why does stock screening work explain core versus non-core and um how you put them into practice you know kind of equal weighting versus uh trying to you know say that well this one's more important than the other that'd be great
1: yeah no sure um so yeah i mean i i, I suppose yeah why it works is um I mean this is like really important key to the value of the book I suppose because um, um I I think one of the one of the quotes I use um in the book which is attributed to Albert Einstein is that everything should be as simple as possible but no simpler. When when you're trying to pick stocks you're dealing with um information which is confusing, complex and contradictory and it's you know the exact recipe for making poor choices because you know, we it's so hard to wait. We're kind of you know we're looking. A, you know, investing is a probability-based discipline, but you know that means you have to wait. What's actually important in you? You know, to your process and to your decisions, and it's an invest. is so difficult, and you know, it's like at the moment we have you know. It's, all about interest rates and inflation. And, you know, that's, that's you know, it's, if, whatever you look at, you know, that's going to be your preoccupation.
0: That's the dominant headline
1: right now. So, yeah, exactly. It's, and, it, and it's whatever whatever's dom- the dominant headline. Of the day. Yeah. And and then equally, if you have, a, you know, if you have, you know, story stocks, anything with an element of story stock to it, you're going to be swayed by it. And it could be a story which is, you know, the negative story as well as a positive story. So um, what, what screening does, which I think is the real value and it's some, um, and, and, you know, it's got this kind of um, process has got more publicity recently with the book um, called Noise, which was um, written by Daniel Kahneman and et al. It's, um, it um, forces you to just to look at what's actually really valuable to a process. You know, what are these kind of key characteristics which are going to help you find a stock which, you know, is maybe going to outperform because it's a value stock or because it's a dividend stock or because it's... Um, you know, quality, whatever. So you just have to really, you know, distill down the key elements and then create your process around them. And just doing that is, you know, is going to put you in such a much better place, not only to find promising ideas, but then to make sense of them afterwards, because you've already decided, you know, what you're looking for. And then so, you're, you know, you're essentially testing whether, you know, those signals you've got good or not and you know sometimes you'll you'll look at one of the signals you get and you go oh no that's absolutely terrible you know the the profits from this company aren't real or you know whatever it is with stock screen it's that process of simplifying which is you know really you know simplifying to what's you know what is valuable which is really why it's a real winner for investors right so then the other yeah core versus non-core this is you know i I suppose it's some this question of what your core criteria and your non-core criteria kind of um just extends this idea of um you know simplification further because um you know there you you can you can add a lot to a screen and it can be very helpful but also it can actually take you away from your quarry because you can start to become too specific and um you know you can just start to identify things which um randomly fit the brief rather than things which actually you know embody what you're looking for so with my screens I always have um core criteria which I'm not going to change I kind of think you know that's too important or if I do change them I will replace them with something which is kind of you know which does a better job hopefully you know sometimes circumstances change so you need to you know change criteria in, in screens but um the non-core criteria or uh, uh, criteria where if um a screen isn't throwing out many ideas, you know. The, I, I'll, I'll just say, well, okay, so let's just not make it pass all of these tests, you know. If it's gonna, if it's passing kind of four out of these six, you know, non-core tests, probably we're getting close to what we're looking for. It's like, you know, we, you don't need to be precious with okay. screens, and um, you know, they, you know, you don't, you know, that even goes to the extent of, you know, you, you know, switching around, you know, what what kind of, um, you know, measures you use for something like quality, you know. And then finally, you're asking about the equal weighting. And again, this is, you know, because simplicity for me is, you know, always going to trump anything else. And I think there is evidence that, you know, e- an equal weighted approach, you know, tends to outperform. But, um, you know, it's just more from the practical point of view that, you know, do you want to be really making a judgment if you've got kind of, you know, two great stocks? You know, do you want to then be saying, you know, this one is greater than the other one? Because, I, you know, it's kind of often it's not, you know, it's not knowable. Right. And there's um there, there's a study that from uh, back in the 70s I think, which um I quote in the book by um some called Robin Downs, and um he did and it, it was it was it was it was the study the conclusions of the study were so surprising at the time that he really struggled to get it published. But what he did he um. He did multiple, multiple regressions on, um, you know, a whole, a whole load of things. So he could produce models based on the multiple regressions. And then he put them against models which kind of just equally weighted all of their inputs. And I mean, this isn't about portfolio construction. This is about prediction. And um, what he found was that the equal weighted models generally... Did a lot better than um than these like really sophisticated models based right. on multiple regression and the, and the, there have been kind of similar studies you know since then which kind of seem to confirm this idea that you know if we try and get too clever with things we actually miss the point it's kind of like you know there's the it's the you know there, there's only so much we can figure out you know the future is totally unpredictable you know we're dealing with so much complexity just you know just focus on you know what you can identify as valuable and, um, it's going to do you a lot more good than if you're, if you try and get, you know, really clever with it because you're, you know, if you start getting really clever with it, you may actually end up focusing on the wrong things or giving too much weight to them rather than focusing on the, you know, things which will really help you.
0: Yeah. And you used the word probability earlier, which I love because I like to say in this business we're, we're, we're odds makers, you know, and you you do the little things every day just to improve your odds. That over the long term you'll add value.
1: Yeah, absolutely, and, and also that it's, it's one of the things which makes it so hard as well, because little things are very hard to kind of notice, and it's hard to notice the significance of them. So um, yeah, often it can feel like you know doing something, you know, which um, isn't a grand gesture, isn't yeah. really adding any value. But yeah, it's yeah, as, as exactly as you say, I think it's kind of about adding all like lots of little things together is what. Yeah. you know, create something really special.
0: And I, I love, um, I think it's the simplicity of the Joel Greenblatt model that you refer to in the book. One of my favorites, the magic formula that makes it so yeah. elegant. You you rank the value criteria, you rank the uh, return on, uh, excuse me, the valuation and the quality criteria, and then you re-rank them and that's it. And there's your yeah. top There's your top 30 and it's done, you know, quite well through the years.
1: Through the, yeah, a- actually I found it interesting when I was, cause I used to, do that green black screen for the column then i did a version which is based on cash so um a free cash flow yield instead of an earnings yield and uh, um, cash from invested capital for uh, for the quality uh, criteria and it actually did way better than the um, original green black uh, screen i think I, i actually think that speaks a lot to just how um accounting treatments have um, made earnings kind of actually uh, really quite a treacherous f- figure to use in screens sometimes.
0: Yeah. Earnings. And that's my next question is about chapter seven and just proving again that you're doing fundamental analysis on intangible assets, because that's the the one difference I have with it isn't just it's the earnings issue. And in that case, it's also the definition of capital. If you use the right hand side, as I call it, of the balance sheet, just add up capital and uh, e- equity and debt, you have a capital number to use. A lot of people like to come at it from the other side, right, which is add up individual assets and subtract certain certain liabilities. And I think Greenblatt kind of historically had I- ignored intangibles, but th- you can't ignore them anymore. And I had the pleasure, we already talked about Joe Wiggins, of, of talking to another one of your countrymen, Jonathan Haskell, co-author of Capitalism Without Capital, The Rise of the Intangible Economy. And what we talked a lot about was how the rise of the intangible economy was wreaking havoc on his world, the the economics world, the, um, yeah. the you know central bank policy, and and we're experiencing it right now. Like we're raising rates like crazy, and, this, and nothing's happening. He's not killing anything. It's certainly not killing corporate America because you can't borrow against intangible assets, and so they just have massive amounts of cash. And what you do with the short term rate has uh, no impact on that. But it, reading your book, it reminds me again that how you measure things like return on capital um yeah. is greatly impacted uh by intangibles if you want to talk a little bit about why you gave it a whole chapter
1: yeah no i, I mean i i am um, i i i wrote a uh, long article in i think 2020 about it which i you know i had been in you know i had been aware of um how you know that it has a lot of influence on um you know, on on the way investors see, um, you know, the world through financials. But I, I, it was only in writing that that I kind of really kind of internalized, I suppose. And um, no, I mean, it's just it's incredible. It's one of these great questions of the day for investors and economists because there's so much which we don't see because it doesn't go through accounts in the way that it should do. So I mean, yeah. So if 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 you have, I mean, just to the, you know. the the basics of it, if if you are investing in in, in an an intangible or, you know, in most intangibles, so something like building your brand or, um, you know, even doing research and development on, you know, the next great wonder drug, let's say, um, it's all a cost. So it's not, you're not creating an asset, which you then set against the revenues that you get from that investment over the long term, you're taking it all up front, which means that um, a lot of companies have tremendously depressed um levels of profitability when they're growing by investing in intangibles and right. it's a completely you know false picture because um you, you know you, you'll, you'll see you'll a com- see a company which you know is far more profitable if you were to t- treat the intangibles the same way you treat tangibles um, but it'll look less profitable than another company and also when that company stops growing and stops investing suddenly it will enter a period of um you know, accounting accounting growth. If you like, yeah. you know, the earnings will take off because they're no longer they no longer have that cost. They've you know they've created a huge asset which they should be depreciating if right. you know if there's any sense in the numbers. But um, but then they're, they're not. They've just been making losses for years, and suddenly they're wildly profitable. And it's like and actually, then you know, and the profits are growing. But in actual fact, they've you know stopped investing. They're not you know they've taken their foot off the gas rather than keeping it on it and then also none of it's on the balance sheet so um yeah they look you know when they do become profitable they look wildly profitable from all those you know classic um quality measures um so i mean you know so it's a real problem and thing for something for all investors to think about and um when it comes to stock screening the problem you have is that um you can you know try and be clever in terms of the um metrics you use but uh there aren't standard ways for adjusting um the balance sheet so when you know when you're looking for quality you know you still have the, you know the the the, the kind of holistic quality ratios which compare profit to um to the capital you know whatever measure of capital right. you want you're um you know you're a bit stuck because even if you get use cash um against whatever capital measure you have You've, st- you've still got, you know, the ca- your measure of capital will be wrong because it won't um, take account of intangibles.
0: So your free cash flow yield uh, on the quality screen addresses the income side, but you still have the capital side to kind of think about.
1: Yeah, you have a balance sheet which um, actually, right. you know, won't um, won't help you. But if, obviously, you know, it kind of, it, you know, it depends on what your company you're looking at. You can still use these measures quite well, I think. But you know, in terms of the, those kind of quality measures, but it's just some, you know, some companies are going to look very weird.
0: One more accounting question. What impact have you seen any studies done in, in the U.S.? minor understanding is in the U.S. and corporate America, it's, it's big. It, the phenomenon of, of uh, swapping out the tradition of paying dividends and using share repurchases is not quite as prevalent in, say, European stocks where they still pay. Uh, no. What do you think?
1: Well, um, no, yeah. In in, in, Europe, in Europe, it's still very much a dividend culture. I mean, I, I think, you know, there are pros and cons. Um, one of the great things about using buybacks is um, that you're not beholden onto them. So a, a lot of companies in the UK right. have got into real trouble because they, you know, they're known as income payers. They're trying to hold
0: up to that dividend when they really shouldn't be paying it. Yeah.
1: Exactly, they need to they need to take care of their balance sheet. Often, you know, they need to just do something else. So, you know, they they're not the business they once were, and they need to adjust to it. But they carry on paying out, you know, the dividend and building up debt, and then they, you know, everything goes wrong. So, and 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 also, there's in in the UK, I think especially, and I think this is less so in the US. Um, people kind of don't understand that um, returning capital is, you know, capital allocation. You know, as any other, you know, just a normal capital allocation decision. It's part of a far bigger, you know, broader sweep. So it's like, you know, if, if if you don't have anything to invest in, then you pay it out as a dividend or you buy back shares. You know, this is like this is like what's left. You know, the the option at the you know, once all, all other options are exhausted, you know, and deemed no good, right. you um you return capital. But um there is a real fetishization of dividends in the UK that, you know, in, in terms of, you know, we have this huge um, income fund sector where the rule is you have to have your fund with a basket of stocks, which um, have has a dividend yield, which beats uh, the benchmark, you know, whatever um, index you're benchmarking against, right. which makes in investment terms, it's make makes no sense. It's right. just like, you know, this is like just this on its own, you know, you can work dividends into a strategy and they can be really, you know, they can be a really good input into a strategy. But not based on, you know, the income. It's just that's, you know, money that is kind you know, when when it comes back to you, I mean like, you know, this is the irony is, you know, the money comes back to you and the share price falls by that amount, you know, X dividend and you get the drop. And it's like, you know, this is like totally zero sum. But um, you know, people go mad for this idea that you're gonna get a, you know, some you know, your brokerage account is gonna get some cash in it. And it's like, Well, it's you know it's um that doesn't mean anything on its own. No. But um but so yeah, so um Anyway, so, yeah, using buybacks gets gets around that. But, I mean, I I think also, you know, you probably shouldn't be holding a stock if it's overvalued, um, if you think it's overvalued. But normally, you know, often buybacks happen when, you know, stocks um, with hindsight prove to be overvalued. And also one of the fascinating things, which I didn't know about until recently when I started writing more about um, U.S. stocks, is the prevalence to which... um, uh um buybacks are used to undo the dilution from share issuance which again is a total zero sum game and it's just like you know this is absolutely mad and and, it, and to the extent i think is Salesforce's um uh that i was the company i was writing up and in in their earnings call they're talking about you know using buybacks to stop the dilution and it's like this is, what yeah. <laughs> i couldn't as, as, as someone who hasn't you know is it, you know, is in the market which is obsessed with dividends for so long. Coming to the, and looking at the market, which is, you know, which uses far more buybacks. You know, this has come like completely out there for me. Yeah. It's uh, funny things which happen.
0: Well, the last uh, the last time we had kind of a big tech boom in the, in the late 90s, uh, security analysts would write up that um, the options pr- plans, which are huge, you know, in Silicon Valley, yeah. didn't cost anything because we were buying back the shares. So <laughs> I'm like, you, realize you, could well, do, you could do other things with that capital, you know. Of
1: course, because, of course, you know, free cash flow, when, you know, it is, it is kind of like put in after um, you calculate, well, for most calculations of free cash flow, obviously, you know, everyone decides how they do it themselves. But for most, it comes, you know, it comes after you've calculated the free cash flow figure. So of course. in terms of presentation, it's a free ride. Right. And everyone looks at the adjusted earnings figures. So, I mean, absurd. But, um, yeah terms of substance it's like nonsense yeah
0: <laughs> chapter nine is a great lead into the first screen quality and confirmation bias alert to listeners mm-hmm. the discussion about the spread between return on capital and cost of capital as a fundamental analysis to me one of the most important in in all of investing and, uh, one of my favorite books was uh, quest for value by stern stewart who created the concept of economic value added and you use the term no pat that uh, operating profit after tax in the book and and it was so informative because for so many reasons one of them was you learned that there was a correlation direct and positive between your just say return on equity and the growth rate that a company could fund internally like i, I again i going back to the my my early days as a security analyst the number of times uh someone a cfo would sit across from me at a conference and say yeah we're going to grow earnings 20% a year. And I said, well, you have a, you have a 9% return on equity. Like, uh, yes, if Don't you do it. <laughs> you can't, you can't, if you have all this cash from a recent offering or debt or of equity or debt of debt or equity, yeah, sure you can, but organically, and what I'm going to pay for in terms of a multiple is limited by your return on uh, capital, but clarify in the title, growth rates and momentum, uh, because this chapter is before we get into the screens, Growth rates in what and and momentum in what? But I just I just can't praise that chapter enough. Just to throw that oh, up.
1: <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, I, I, but yeah, I mean, in terms of growth rate, it, it, it's um, I mean, yeah, the, I think the main point it makes about growth, uh, but it's uh, yeah, the, I mean, the the main the main point. I mean, the point I always. You know try and make about growth is that it's not always good it's come kind of like, you know it's one of those things it. it's behavioral isn't it it's kind yes. of we we think you know the word growth is a great word it's like it's you know it sounds who couldn't want growth yeah until yeah you you can you know until it's that kind of um totemic um transformate transformating uh transformative acquisition which you know three years down the line it's massive write downs from a new CEO and like. Oh yeah, no, that was Cheers.
0: another another uh, crutch in the late '90s was making an acquisition kind of in the second quarter every year, and uh, a company that's <laughs> growing at GDP and showing oh we're growing twenty percent a year, therefore we deserve a a twenty percent PE multiple. And and I'm just like, who are you talking to? But unfortunately, there wasn't an audience for that uh, nonsense back in the day. Let's jump into the screens. Uh, quality um again you clarified up uh front that there are factor funds that the academics that talk about quality some use return on capital some strictly margins you talk about asset turnover and i, I love return on capital because it does feel like long term it's all encompassing whereas you know just using margins misses some businesses that yeah. have tremendous asset turns mm-hmm. like a drug distributor i mentioned earlier might have a low single digit operating margin but its returns on capital are huge because it turns yeah. it turns its um its assets so its inventory so rapidly and i went back and looked uh just for personal interest at amazon kind of before the web services kind of confused the model yeah. when it was just internet retail and the thing that the including me i think the, ma- the majority of the world missed who didn't buy into it because they just saw low or zero or negative operating profits was if you went and i think you do the same thing I go to the cash flow statement first. That's the first thing I look at. And then I work. Oh, back, yeah. Backwards, yeah, yeah. You know? And so even when they were making no uh, accounting earnings, they were generating gobs of cash because they turned their inventory every 45 days and paid their vendors every 90 days. Brutal for the vendors. And that's why it's some analysts who understood that if they need to grow 20, if they grow 20 percent a year. Forget about earnings. You know, they're just generating gobs and gobs of of cash but walk through some of um how you think about quality in the way you do it
1: yeah no sure so the screen i mean i so i mean the i i think there's a reason people look to margins first which is that it's a far more reliable actual guide to quality because i mean if you if you have amazing asset turn and very low margins it can be the basis of a brilliant business like you know like yeah like amazon like costco um, and lots of people overlook it which is a great reason to look for it right but you off, you can also have um you know the the company which has low margins because it's just very vulnerable true and so and I, so uh, th- which is one of the reasons why the screen uses as its way in and i, and I say in the book you know you don't, you know, you, you, can, you can set this up so it's far more attuned to asset turn if you want. But the way, you know, I've done it as a, a screen over the 10 years is far more attuned to the, the kind of um, quality that will produce high margins. Okay. And, um, and so it's just like it makes it less, you know, you're, you're, you tend to find companies which are less vulnerable to um, the cycle or um, outside factors. Because um, if, you, if you have a high margin, you've got something which someone wants to buy. It's basically, you know. That that's kind of, you know, that that's the way I kind of tend to say, you know, it's something which is special. So it's kind of, right. you know, it's a, it's a sign of specialness. So whereas asset turn is kind of, if it's if it's good asset turn, it's a sign of a special business model. Right. And 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 you may have something which people, you know, you'll have something which people want 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 to buy, but it's kind of, like, you know, it's it's, it's from a, from a different way. So um, the the core ones and that one are operating margin and also another. Another measure, which I don't like particularly, uh, which is like, it's like ironic, I've got this screen. And I, in the book, I say this about both of them. I don't like this. So it's return on equity that I use. Yeah. And return on equity, obviously, is this number which is completely skewed by debt. You can yep. have you can look great in terms of return on equity because you're, you know, Leverage. borrowed to the hilt. And yeah. that's like definitely not what you want from a quality company. Um, but the return on equity numbers that you can get from databases tend to be fairly robust. And that was like when, when I was going uh, originally making that screen and I was looking at the um, other return on capital numbers, um, I just wasn't confident in the consistency of um, and the way the database calculates
0: stuff. it, you mean, like, is that what you mean? Yeah. About, just, yeah, yeah.
1: yeah. And, 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 and kind of, and between companies and just what was going in, you know, I was making my own, own numbers and they were different and it's just, you know, I, I just couldn't, and I've, you know, these screens, I think have been through three different databases in terms of um, they've been run on three different databases. Cause um, the place I work for changed its um, information like, okay. uh, you know, periodically return on equity was just the cleanest number and so i balance it with a test for gearing essentially okay in that in that screen and um and then just you know it's the, the other question with quality is consistency because obviously you know you get these situations where cyclicals can look like quality companies based on the numbers and um often um you know in my experience you see private investors being lured into you know, the house builder or whatever it is, because they're going through a really good patch and they've got really great numbers for everything, <laughs> you know, quality numbers. And actually, it's just, you know, and they're cheap. Of course, they're cheap because, you know, the people who know these companies know it's not going to last. So, um yeah, looking for consistency is key. And I mean, actually, interestingly, this is um, a screen that I made a fairly substantial change to, I suppose, in about. Uh, i think it was about 2015 2016 because um originally when i started doing these screens we were coming out of the great financial crisis and i had a um a value criteria based on the peg ratio which um you know if if you've got quality and you've got a low peg ratio you should be in a really good uh, Those position combined that's yeah gross, yeah growth worth paying for yeah yeah and uh, and yeah and if you've got a low peg ratio people aren't paying up for the growth but um around i think it started in 2014 and um that i started to notice uh there were lower quality names in there and and then i let it run for a couple of years and then it's just i've just this okay this is you know this shouldn't be a value screen you shouldn't you know quality shouldn't be cheap and you know the fact that this worked for how many years was you know that reflected the market we had oh, then. I gotcha yeah you know you've got to you've got to just you know adapt it and um and so I just took took away any kind of screen for value, and the stocks were a lot more expensive, but especially because of where we were in the in markets at that time, the screen, you know, the performance just, you know, went brilliantly. Yeah. From there, which was um, so um, and because and people were paying, you know, almost anything for quality for. <laughs> but, I I think, really, but I think, but I think you make know, the point that in the book
0: that, book that. that uh, for quality companies, over the long term, if you go back and say, man, this stock looks expensive now boy i wish i owned you know whatever you know some company generating 35% returns like i but if you go back 10 years it, it really didn't matter what you paid for it if you should have just bought it like for those really exclusive high quality companies yeah
1: i mean that uh, yeah if you, if you kind of go backwards and look at yeah what you could have paid for really high quality names yeah you can pay amazing amounts and still make <laughs> it money, still made money. that was a it great doesn't study. mean you won't it, do, it doesn't mean you won't yeah Get really broken, yeah, on, on, on you know, on, on the ways through, and I think I think we've just experienced a time like that. You know, quality got so popular, and when I, um, you know, started writing the book, you know, the the num, you know, the numbers in the book are amazing, and I'd say if you know if we were to do ten years to today, the numbers would you know would be far worse because quality, you know, just you know was at its zenith probably I, I around it. the time when I was starting to write the book. I mean, other 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 approaches, you know, like Vandy we're still having a very hard time. So, um, but yeah, it's just, that's the way of markets, I guess.
0: So last question on quality, the behavioral one, why does it work? And I, you just pointed out that it's changed over time, but <clears throat> over the very long haul, why does the quality factor, work? why are these opportunities periodically available from a behavioral
1: perspective? So um, what, what I what I turned to to explain this was uh, my... Um, Professor Hans Rowland's work. I hope I've pronounced his name right. He was um, this physicist and data visualization pioneer who was obsessed with the fact that, you know, the world keeps on getting better and better, but we act like it's getting worse and worse. And he had had this great thing called the straight line, uh, you know, term called, you know, our straight line instinct that we see progress as a straight line. And of course, you know, with compounding, it's this amazing upward sloping curve. Um, and so you know i I think it's it's very hard to appreciate the power of compounding when you know from day to day because nothing seems to change you may be you know by the end of the process it won't seem like it's changing either because it's like the increments of change are so small but because they build on top of each other it's you know mind-blowingly powerful so um i think yeah we can't um we, you know, it's just something we're not built to understand. And so we're not built to value it. And, we're, you know, and for good reason, we're, you know, suspicious of it because, one, you know, one of the, you know, worst things you can do is just, you know, run after hot growth stories because they all kind of say, you know, we're going to be making loads of money out of this growth and then very few of them actually deliver. But, um, you know, we can, but the fact that we just find it so hard to appreciate the power of compounding means you can have these quality stocks in front of you which display all the characteristics you'd expect and you can just buy them and you can make money over you know over the long term
0: yeah the compounding works for you the investor and i think the compounding works internally for the company that's one of the Buffett's lessons yeah. is i want to buy these companies i don't want the dividend i want the company that's earning a ridiculously high return on capital that has things to do with that capital going back to your early discussion about the capital assets it's decision shouldn't be fixed to either dividends or stock repurchase but more uh, opportunistic. So the other other theory, I I just, I was looking, I put on my long distance glasses to see a book on my shelf over there uh, about factor analysis. Uh, The theory on why this one exists in sometimes is that it goes to that negativity bias that we take those high return on capital businesses and assume it's going to revert to kind of cost of capital much faster than it does. And Um, I, I even have a theory that the higher the return on capital, the longer it's going to stay there because it's what I call, you know, Buffett has that, uh, I buy wide moat businesses line. It's the measure of the moat. Right. And, and I'm again, going back to the nineties, I can't tell you how many times I sat across from a CFO who's bragging about this competitive advantage and this, you know, uh, no one has this and this proprietary that, and I'm like, yeah, but you've got a eight percent return on capital. The market's telling you, just, <laughs> just barely above your cost. The market is telling you you have close to a commodity product or or service over time. So I almost say like I, I love the and you you do some of it. The strengths, we the the market analysis, like Porter's Five Forces. It's all great stuff. But it, at the end of the day, for a company that's been around long enough, you can kind of look at their financial statements and go, Yeah, it's bad. they got they yeah, got something. No. <laughs> they I don't uh, I'm not in their business, but they've got something anxious to ask about um, the next screen, the contrarian value. What, what's the difference between the contrarian value and just value, just cheap stocks?
1: Well, I, How I I do you think, describe it I'd, that way? And there are two things. So one is um, a lot of people kind of, you know, have, have that line that all, all investing is value investing. So, you know, kind of quality investing, as we're just talking about, you know, it's kind of, you know, the quality is being undervalued. I, I kind of think, you know, that's not the kind of cheap stuff which i that, that i'm you know interested in with this screen but also um i think a lot of the measures that we use um for you know trying to value companies as, as we were talking about earlier it becomes slightly redundant but actually I, I was far less aware of that when i when i when i um kind of came up with this screen but it but um So it's kind of almost by chance that it has avoided many of those bullets. What I love is um, kind of earnings, uh, uh, sorry, earnings, enterprise value to sales as a measure of value, because um, essentially, you know, sales are what for most businesses, they derive profits from. And if you're looking for a contrarian situation, you should expect its profits to be reduced. You should expect it to be having a hard time. So um, the contrarian value screen kind of purposefully it looks for companies which have had decent margins and it's not looking at capital at all it's not looking at the balance sheet side of things except to check the debt isn't too um too bad but um it's it's kind of you know it's kind of it's like we've got a you know a company with sales basically the sales look you know fairly robust and in the past it has had um you know a level of profitability which suggests that you know it's had you know the business has been good in the past. And, and then, you know, the idea is reversion to the mean. If it has been good in the past, you know, often it'll be good, you know, good again in the future. And and we misjudge that always as people, you know, what what we see in front of us is how it's always going to be a lot of the time, but especially when you're, when you're seeing some, you know, company in distress, it's very hard to imagine things getting better. We fixate on the negative and the losses people have made on the stock and it just becomes, completely you know horrible for us to even consider
0: so yeah the market is extrapolating this new world order of lower margins and the analysis is but if we get back to just what we were for for a long long time you've got a you've got a winner we're completely undervaluing the the stock
1: and I mean, also in these situations, you see like, you know, the faintest bit of good news often kind of, you know, lifts, you know, leads to a really huge revaluation.
0: Totally. Yeah. It's a shock that they're getting back to where they were. Yeah, that they even
1: could. Yeah. yeah.
0: I, I held this question. I forgot, but it's a, it's an interesting one for the work that I've thought about and it applies to both quality and value. Do you automatically take out banks or do they get taken out by the nature of your screens? Do financials even show up in your work?
1: No, no, not uh not not really. I mean I I'm trying to think whether I take them take them out intentionally. Um Well
0: they're spread businesses and this is a return on capital kind of model, so it's, it's, it doesn't yeah. it, it shouldn't even work. Yeah, I
1: mean it should, I, I um I, I um I'm uh I've I've set up different screens for um okay. you know and the same ones from where but I mean what what I tend to do is with financials just take them out after they emerge, you know crop up if they do crop up. Um, so um, yeah, I mean, it, it, but it's yeah, clear, clearly these aren't really screens that you want to have financials with. I mean, obviously, you know, if you, if you use um, price to book, uh, you you know, there are certain stocks where you know the the one in my in, in my book is um, enterprise value to sales. But if you if you're going for price to book, then you can start to you know look at um, uh, you know at more asset heavy companies. And, you know, and banks and you look, you could look at, you could, you could do the same, you know, something similar to the screen in the book, but, you know, you're looking at return on equity rather than margins and think, you know, things like that. Yeah. Um. But yeah, the analysis is, you know, slightly different, but the idea, the same idea can be applied.
0: And we talked, so we talked about why uh, the behavioral reasons why contrarian value works and really introduced that important concept of mean reversion, which is, this is a great opportunity, this particular factor to explain what that is and then now the third one's very different for me this uh the dividend investing uh factor is why does it work we're talking about total return here right i think that's a uh, an important yes distinction. everything's
1: total yeah 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 I, I mean i i only talk in total well, total return unless i have to otherwise because it's um i mean yeah the, the, I, I think i've got in, in the book i've got that graph that people use sometimes when they do the Indexed with and without dividends to make a point for dividend, but then, but then you're asking, so what happened to all that dividend it's money? Insane. They would have kept it if they didn't pay it out. It's like, I don't know why we've got price graphs anywhere.
0: No, I, I agree, and uh, you know, I have I have family that are are not in the financial world, but they you know they're like I'm sure with you, you get you know your, your in-laws and your high school buddies, you know, uh, come to you now for advice. And one of the biggest uh, things they miss is when you go into a discount brokerage screen, there there's a box you have to check for dividend reinvestment if you want it reinvested i emphasize like if you're putting in your retirement financial planning model a 10% long term return from equities you're not getting it if you're not reinvesting those dividends yeah. i mean historically it's like 40% of return it, it reinvested in something manually or just check the box and Absolutely. make sure it goes <laughs> so why does dividend investing work and touch on which is in the in the quant world, a separate factor, which is fascinating, obviously because of my yeah. opposition to EMH in that whole world, is that there's there's a low vol factor kind of underlying this. I think, but I'll I'll let you explain yeah. it.
1: Yeah, no, so I mean, really, this the screen kind of combines this idea of consistent dividend payments, decent yield, and um, low vol measured by the beta. And which kind of you know suggests a company's fairly defensive, you know, it's come kind of it's, it's you know, far from perfect, but um it suggests it's a you know, a fairly stable company. I think um, you know, the the, the interesting work on this is um the you know, very you know, work from the seventies again, you know, it's kind of like a lot of the uh, research I referred to in the book I, I try and go back to you know those seminal bits of research and you know i, I kind of think if, if if a bit of research has stood up over decades and been added to by other people then you know you probably have an idea which has some validity and um yeah the idea of emh is that you you know you get rewarded for the risk you take and in, in uh in emh the you know risk is beta says so volatility right and people you know people question whether that's you know right or not you know shouldn't it be you know, risk of you know loss, loss of, capital. of capital. Yeah, but um, I mean, I I kind of actually, you know, I kind of was sympathetic to that, but then I kind of took a more behavioural view on it, and it's actually when you're most likely to lose capital, it's when something's volatile and you make the wrong decision because you're panicking. So are the two that different kind of thing? Any, any anyway, you know, you could argue, to, you know, till the cows come home about that. So yeah, so it's so it's quite curious. And there's um there's a um a, a Dutch investor, come academic, come investor who's done a lot of research into combining low volatility with dividends and his works like um, and he works for uh, a firm called Rebecca and his work's very interesting I think on this but um, really when when I was kind of trying to dig into it more basically so much of um, you know what this approach is about is just about conservative um, management of companies because the thing we're talking about with um, you know growth and growth having to you know generate an acceptable return what you find i think looking at markets is that most companies are prepared to invest in growth when it doesn't make it an acceptable return Growth for growth's sake yeah and so really this isn't you're not screening for a positive <laughs> you're kind of screening for not a negative in, in many ways yeah so if you have um and, and and like another another thing which would seem to reinforce that idea is that um it's often family companies who um come up as companies which kinda of, you know fit these characteristics of low volatility and good dividend record. And you in those family companies, um there's there's a um index which used to be done by Credit Suisse. I don't know if it'll still be done following the takeover, but it's the family company index, which has really great outperformance um over um I, it's, you know, I don't know how many years they've done it before, but it's come back, you know, a significant number of years, these family-owned companies, which I think they define as over 30% family-owned. Um, I could be wrong about that. Family-owned companies outperformed and they, just because they're looking out for the next generation and they're conservative in the way they approach things. This this idea that, you know, investors are rewarded for taking risks, going back to that EMH idea, it, it proves, you know, not to be true. It's, it's reversed. Like right. less volatile companies, tend to perform better over time That's and right. the really unvolatile ones come a bit worse than the ones which are a bit more volatile but it's kind you know the it's an inverse relationship to the one predicted by emh and what it seems to be telling us i think especially with this work done on dividends couple you know coupling the two together is that you know conservatism works you know you want management who just you know they don't take on too much debt they don't take too much risk with the investment they make don't make big mistakes yeah, exactly. Yeah. It's a long term, multi-generational profit um, project. And also it's um, this kind of virtue, I think, is under because, you know, you're dealing with a type of quality which won't necessarily show up in those kind of like really big returns on capital. Because it's, you know, it's based around stability and doing, you know, doing well enough and, you know, returning, returning cash and, you know, just investing sensibly. And that's the way you create your quality, which is kind of like um, far more qualitative than um, just, you know, having a business which has really great asset turn or really high margins or something. Right, right. So, um, you know, for me, for me, it's kind of like, you know, these companies are really underappreciated. You know, you can buy them, you know, the fact the you know, dividend yield being in there, it's kind of like partly... In order to try and get exposure to this stock at a you know a good value. I mean, dividend yield. I, I, I would dispute that it's a real value metric, but in in this case, it's serving as a proxy for one. Understood. And uh, and yeah, the results are they're you know they're really quite lovely. I'd say, John. Because <laughs> they are. It doesn't it doesn't get beaten up too much during the tough times. It doesn't outperform too much during the good times. Though. That's all right. Oh yeah, over over the big sweep, it come kind of like does really you know real nice.
0: <laughs> and and, and uh, I know a lot of people who read books skip the appendices, and this is one where I highly recommend almost going to the back and starting with those because you'll have buy in right away, and then then go back uh, and start from the beginning. The the fourth factor, which is the toughest one for me to understand, is momentum. And yeah. there's a, a, a his name escapes me. I think the CEO of Adventist who who spun out of DFA Factor Fund. Uh, firm. <clears throat> I listened to an interview of, of his on a podcast and, and it was interesting. He said, he talked about all the factors he builds funds around and momentum is not one of them. He says, I see it. I know it works. I don't under, <laughs> I, can, I can't explain it. I think you do a a great job because again, like everything, it comes back to behavior, but you know, you, you, you tell the listeners, why does momentum work?
1: Well, I mean, it's, yeah, it, it comes, it, it feels right. First, I, I think, you know, I can always appreciate why it feels wrong to anyone because it's like you're buying something which has gone up it's like surely I've missed the boat <laughs> right and then and then often also you're buying something you know you can get these big whipsaws in it which is it's come kind of like huge drawback um and you know my the, the screen I have tries to get around that a bit but it can't get around it it's, you know you, you have whipsaws and momentum the way I kind of understand momentum is that it's kind of this strange stuff that goes on when people make these big collective decisions, which is what's happening in the market. And I think, you know, going back to EMH, there's this idea, you know, that all information is in the in, in the price. And it has right. to be like that because you've got loads of really smart people all looking at the same stocks and making decisions. And we know there's this thing called the wisdom of crowd, crowds. And that's, you know, really powerful. And you normally get the best decision when lots of, you know, when a diverse group is making lots of decisions independently. You know, the average is normally optimal. But um, in markets, obviously, you know, the decisions aren't independent because we all have price information, and that is, you know, the the information from the wisdom of the crowd. Um, so, so, like, yeah. so actually, now we're now we're into something quite interesting because if we're saying, you know, these um, judgments need to be made independently um they're not independent like everyone knows what everyone else is doing because they can see the stock price move right so um you know people start coming you know jumping on to you know what other people are doing and like you know stocks start to move kind of irrationally it can be or sometimes it can be you know there's something really happening and people are you know all waking up to it together you know they're using the price movement to get onto it um so you know you just have you have this really powerful and incredibly influential um uh phenomenon uh which is momentum, and there's and, you know the, there's so much evidence you know it, it kind of works but the the other thing um i've you know i I coupled this phenomenon with of price momentum with this kind of earnings momentum, but through revisions to broker forecasts and um I mean I think you know there's an amazing study by david dremmen which um kind of got extended by a German firm I think called star Capital, just into how wrong. Brokers tend to be with their forecasts. I think it's um, it's yeah. you know they they the, the studies come back they're thirty percent wrong in terms of where they start the year at with where the actual earnings come out with at the end of the year. Yeah. But the really interesting thing for the momentum investor is you get these trends in forecast upgrades and downgrades. So they're you know, you know, analysts I have the greatest respect for, and they do like you know the hardest job out there. They, you know, come kind of predicting things which can't be predicted, basically, but they come kind of giving the most intelligent guide they can at the ta- At a time. But that means, you know, you have to be rooted in fact in order to, you know, and you you don't want to get too far away from the crowd. Otherwise, you're going to lose your job or, you know, if, you know, if, if what you're speculating on doesn't happen, you're going to be ridiculed. But um, there are these trends which develop in kind of, you know, company performance. So they can be external or internal. And you just get these incredible, um, you know, upgrade stories, Moves, which just yeah. persist and persist. Yeah. And the other amazing thing is that the market does tend to be anchored. I mean, because these are, like, you know, very worthy, you know, forecasts being made, the market does tend to be anchored to them a lot, a lot of the time. I mean, you can get the situation where if it isn't an upgrade, the stock falls because it, they've become so entrenched. But, um, you know, stock prices move in in in, in sync with them. Um, with with these upgrades so if you combine this idea of um price momentum and earnings momentum you get something which is you know extremely powerful i think yeah um and slightly i mean i you know i don't i say this with trepidation because i've got no evidence for it really and um, definitely there were there was a big drawdown in over the 10 years i um monitored my momentum screen but it should you know in theory offset some of the volatility of momentum because you've got something kind of of fundamental substance going on as well as the price of momentum that um, is powering those, those shares upwards.
0: Well, I I love it. This has been brilliant Algie. Tell me uh, before we go, what else should I have asked that you want that I failed to ask that you want listeners to understand about the book and then, and then finish with, because you mentioned there's been a job change since you started this project where everybody can find you and follow you.
1: Oh yeah no great um yes yeah, so um you know what i, I think I, I think i suppose um the one thing i would say um you've given me lots of time to speak on so thank you very much i think i've probably <laughs> probably said too much for most of most not people <laughs> but um i get, i guess the, you know it, it, it at its heart the kind of you know one of the ideas behind the books is that you know investing is one of those things which is simple but not easy and um the you know the explanations in the book and the kind of practical element of it are designed to make everything simpler and to make people better investors so that's like you know really was my ambition in writing the book and then um yeah so and then what what I'm doing now um I'm I'm the investment editor um of um something called Citywire Elite Companies which again is a kind of this kind of blend of quantitative and qualitative because um what we've done and we kind of we we recently launched the project um properly earlier this year we've um identified all the best fund managers in the world we've measured the conviction they show they show towards every stock in their portfolio and then we've aggregated all the information so that we um can Rank stocks by the conviction of the world's best investors.
0: Interesting.
1: So um, we, we've kind of CityWise is a company which produces ratings. So we come rate stocks now, the top 10% in our universe um, get, you know, A. the next 20% get Double et cetera. And um, it's, yeah, I mean, it's just a really interesting project because it links that idea of, um, you know, the human, you know, the human factor behind it. And, uh, you know, but it's come using a kind of quantitative overlay And and also, there's come quite a lot of academic evidence that um, by focusing on high conviction positions of fund managers, you know, there's a whole thing about fund managers basically, you know, can't beat the market. But the weird thing is, when people have looked inside the portfolios at the most high conviction positions, those do seem to beat the market. And actually, everything else gets undone with this, you know, with, you know, with the rest, with the kind of like, you know, far more lightweight bets that they have. Anyway so yeah so that's what I'm doing now and, I, and and then I'm I'm applying these screens to that universe which is a really interesting thing so we're getting these kind of you know my hope is that we start with um we start with a universe of stocks which you know uh, in a better position than you know any no, other stocks out right. there and then we screen them to get kind of the really interesting situations within that as well
0: further narrowed so. down uh, it's it's brilliant and uh, I can't thank you enough for your time today I thoroughly enjoyed the conversation and Uh, I will include links in the notes to the pod when it comes out to uh, where you're at, where people can follow you and what you're doing, and especially where to buy this, uh, this book. So thank you, sir, and best of luck.
1: Thanks so much. Thank you.